turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. I know it's probably a surprise we're not finished with the book of John yet, but we're only about halfway through it. We're going to be spending the rest of our time in the last week of Jesus. Most people aren't really aware that the last week of Jesus takes on about a quarter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It takes on about the same amount in the Gospel of Mark, but here in John, it takes on half of the entire Gospel message. We already covered Palm Sunday, and we're in John chapter 12. There's 21 chapters So you got to understand how much time John focuses on this last week, the time that, as we will learn from Jesus' own lips, his hour has finally come. Something that we have been talking about over and over again from the very first miracle onward is that his hour has not come. He says it to his mother at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Woman, my hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. They couldn't arrest him because his hour wasn't yet. They sought to kill him, but his hour was not yet. Now it is his hour. And the sufferings of Christ and his last teachings to his disciples in the upper room, his unbelievably terrifying to preach through high priestly prayer of John 17, the sufferings of Christ in Gethsemane, to the cross, to the tomb, to the resurrection, and to the declarations of the purpose why this gospel is being told throughout the world, these are the wonderful things we have to look forward to. John chapter 12 is a watershed moment for the gospel of John, and it's something that you will see here why that is. Now, all of a sudden, you have people from outside of Jerusalem and Judea, even people outside of Samaria that we saw in John chapter 4. Now we have traveling Greeks coming to hear from Jesus to understand what is the message that this Jewish rabbi that we aren't even allowed to approach has to say, because we've heard of him. We've heard of the things that he has done. We've heard of the works that he has done. We've even heard of Lazarus rising from the dead. That is something worth our inspection. We find ourselves in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Not a very long passage, but truly one of the most significant ones. And I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read it. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage. We thank you, Father, because we know that before the foundation of the world was set, you intended your mind and your salvation of your people. We are not even in this room by accident, Father, but by your very design to hear your word as inspired by your spirit, preserved by your forbearance, and given to us this morning to fall on our ears. Give us ears to hear, Father. 
We pray that you illumine these words to our hearts, to our minds, even to our very emotions, that we love the things that you have said as we submit to them and follow you gratefully. We pray this in your son's name and for his sake and for the glory of your kingdom. Amen. You can be seated. I don't want it to fall on deaf ears how strange it is that Greeks come seeking wisdom from a Jewish Messiah. In the first century, that is nearly unheard of. Athenians, Spartans, Thessalonians, they have no respect for Jewish mysticism. They have no respect for the understanding that there will be a resurrection from the grave. In Greek thought, according to their culture and according to their philosophy, death was going to be the most magnificent moment in the life of somebody. They will finally throw off this mortal body that is given to entropy and will join the ethereal realm. The fact that Greeks are coming to a Jewish Messiah who is preaching about resurrection and life to come is unheard of. Something about the message of Jesus had transmitted to them. We aren't told what. We are told they wanted to see Jesus. We aren't even told that Jesus saw them. We are just told that they come to the two disciples who have Greek-sounding names, Philip and Andrew. The other disciples all have Jewish names. They only approach the ones close to Jesus who remind them of them. Philip a Greek name, Andrew, a Greek name, and the only two of the 12 disciples who had that. Go go tell Jesus we want to talk to him. Don't let any of the other Jewish guys know. Just, we want to see him. And what is the message that Jesus gives them? It is so pertinent to us living in our culture because our entire culture is based on Greek thought. And so Jesus' response, I think you will find, is more applicable to us than most of his responses have been. In fact, there's going to be a lot of responses from Jesus in the coming chapters that are very applicable to us because now it's about to be revealed that the gospel is not just for Jerusalem. The gospel is for the world. And we will finally see a fulfillment of what is promised in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 3 that not only was all things made through him, but that God so loved the world that he gave his son that all those who believe on him would have life that doesn't end. You see, in all of the ways that Greek thinking was, they valued life, but only in its ethereal spiritual existence, not this life. This life is given to entropy, as those of you who have lived past the age of 25 know well. This life is given to running down and eventually stopping. And so there's no value in Greek thought seen to this life. This life is good in and of itself, but it's given to entropy. We desire the spiritual realms where there is no entropy, where there is no breaking down, where there is just joining the ethereal universe. That was the hope of many of them. It is the hope of many in our culture who even look at suffering and death from that lens. It is true of many Christians 
who look at death as a salvation away from our sufferings. My friend, I want to show you on Jesus' own lips, suffering is part of the Christian walk by gift. It is so that we glorify God and see no value in preserving this life, but instead to look to the one who gave life to begin with. We're going to see it, and we're going to see the way Jesus wraps it all in a neat package. Let's look at verse 20. Among those who went up to worship, this is again referring to Jerusalem. You always refer to ascending to Jerusalem because Jerusalem itself is on a hill. And so you have, for instance, in the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascents. That's in the 120s, where you would sing these Psalms as you walk up the path to Jerusalem, preparing to go there for the feasts. They were all coming there for Passover. Again, if you remember, Acts chapter 2 is only about seven weeks away, maybe eight weeks away. Everyone, Jews, Greeks, are all coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, and what a Passover it was going to be. The night of Passover does not just go by without any fanfare. This Passover was accompanied by darkness throughout the entire land. Earthquakes, tombs opening. This is all just a few days off. And they all stay around in Jerusalem to hear about what in the world is happening because of the death of the one that's called Jesus of Nazareth. They all stick around. And we learn about them in Acts chapter 2, still sticking around to see if the day of Pentecost would bring something mesmerizing as well. And boy, were their expectations exceeded. What happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost to further surprise them, Jews from all over the world? What happened? Spirit of God came into the apostles, didn't he? They spoke in their normal language, and what happened to the hearing of everyone there? whether they are from Parthia or Mede, whether from Syria, Macedonia, Athens, what did they hear? Their own language. They didn't just hear it in Hebrew or in Aramaic. The gospel was going straight to them, straight to their home, showing that the salvation of God was no longer encapsulated in the people of Jerusalem. No, it was going to go out, and here's the whole point for the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here, John, in writing this gospel, has already experienced all of that. It's been 50 years since that happened, and here he's retelling the story. This wasn't something brand new. This was something foreshadowed even. I love the way John even refers to it in multiple cases. We didn't really understand what in the world was going on, but it was only after the fact that we look back and go, oh, Jesus was doing things we had no earthly idea of. Jesus says that he will go to Jerusalem and he will be crucified, put to death, and buried, and raised again on the third day. And John says, yeah, we, didn't, we had no earthly idea what he's talking about. Because no, that when we come to the end of Palm Sunday or Monday morning of Passion Week, which is what the timeline that we're looking at is. We know what's coming later that week. But the disciples had no idea that this was a unique week. They just knew one thing. We enter Jerusalem to fanfare and welcome. He is the king of the Jews. That's what they knew. 
Imagine their surprise. Four days hence. Three days after that, where Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. It'll be broken for you. My blood will be shed for you. They're coming to take me. Imagine their surprise when he is taken to the cross. John, the only apostle who sticks around to see Jesus actually crucified, is sitting at the foot of the cross as he is dying. And given responsibility to take care of his mother. The range of emotions and expectations over that week of the apostles changed them for the rest of their lives. Because they went from earthly fanfare and welcome to destruction and despondency and suffering beyond measure. Only to be ripped out of that on Easter morning. I'm not going to give away the end. I'll leave that off for now. What is it about looking back on this time that John is saying, look, Greeks were even approaching us during this time. The Greeks that John has seen saved in his lifetime over the past five decades. He goes back and tells this story 50 years later. And he says, the Greeks were even coming up to Jesus and asking him about these things. They were coming up to worship at the feast. Greek-speaking Jews or Greeks that were national Greeks that were God-fearers. Both. They were there at the feast. They were coming up for Passover. They didn't approach James, John. They didn't approach Peter. They approached the only two disciples that had Greek names who lived all the way in the north, Bethsaida of Galilee. And asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Not even that Jesus would necessarily speak to us because he's a Jewish rabbi, we are Greeks. That kind of interaction is almost as bad as Samaritans. We just want to see him. Where is he going to be? What is he going to do? We've traveled all this way, and that is no small travel at all. A week by boat, many by foot. Philip went to Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. And look at Jesus' response. It is that moment that he chooses to announce that his hour has come. To tell it first to Greek-named Jewish disciples of his so that they could tell the Greeks that were seeking after them, my hour has come. What about that moment switched it? You see, what was Jesus' ministry to? He was first to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, yes? He told this to the Syrophoenician woman. She said that he would be able to heal her daughter from afar. And Jesus says, what have you had to do with me? I, I have a responsibility to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not good to give food that is meant for the children to the dogs. And she didn't go, I'm offended. Instead, she goes, yes, dogs eat crumbs, though. I don't care 
where it is, I care that it comes from you. And what does Jesus say to her? I haven't found faith like that even in Israel. Your daughter is healed. Go. But here we have Greeks seeking Jesus from afar. And what is his response? The lost sheep of the house of Israel, that ministry is now come to an end. Now comes to the end of my hour. Where is he going to go? What is he going to do this very week? He is going to go to Gethsemane. He is going to go to the cross. He is going to go to the tomb. And by the time six days is up, from this very moment, he has risen from the dead again. A salvation that is enacted not just to Jerusalem and not just to those who are gathered in Israel, but instead is for all the peoples of the world without discrepancy, without favoritism, People out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people will be saved. This is why Jesus saves this moment and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now he expresses how this is going to come about. Look at verse 24. He saves one of those double-acting, pay-attention phrases. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Look at that. In order to continue the work that I am going to do, I cannot just stand here on the ground. I must go and die and be buried and bring forth much fruit. And he takes this marvelous picture from agriculture. I hope I don't need to explain to you. When you plant wheat in the ground, or when you plant an acorn, to take another picture of it, you do not expect that that acorn just grows into a bigger acorn, do you? What do you, what do you expect when you put an acorn in the ground? Watermelons? A tree. What kind of tree? Elm tree, birch tree, whatever tree it happens to be, whatever kind of acorn? Acorn tree. That's not right. <laughs> what do you think? An orc tree. We'll call it that. Oak tree, I'll give it to you. Orc trees sound a little bit cool, though. An oak tree. That's exactly right. Jesus is expressing this very thing. An acorn, if you have an oak tree, I don't know how many of you do, but I once lived in a house that had like six oak trees. We used to have a carpet of acorns every fall. It was unbelievable. And, I mean, two inches thick of just acorns everywhere. Guess how many of those grew into trees? Zero. Sitting on top of the ground does nothing. For those of you who love gardening and things like this, what do you have to do first? Bury it. Jesus is taking this picture. We have to kill it first. Bury it in the ground. And from that comes something that you could never look at an acorn and expect. Paul will take this exact picture in 1 Corinthians 15 and apply it to our resurrection bodies. We can't look at our own bodies and say, I know what heaven will be like. It'll just be a little bit more of whatever this is. He says, no, no, no. It's like a seed that goes into the ground. Out comes something that doesn't look anything like the seed. It's not like you plant an acorn in the ground and then you come back a little bit later, dig up that acorn, and then it's like a glowing, bigger acorn. So, no, no, no. It's so different and yet it comports to what it was. And what Jesus is saying is, what will happen with him? He uses wheat as the example. Again, wheat goes into the ground, up comes not a big kernel of wheat, a wheat plant, a stalk with a grain, the husks, the leaves, everything. 
and not just one, but many, takes this moment to express to them, I am going to die and be buried, and from that great suffering, from that death, will come life for many. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he gives us one of the most wonderful teachings for the church. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, the synoptic gospels, especially Luke, expands the quotations of Jesus at this moment and says it's not just your own life. It is your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, yes, even your own life. If you seek to preserve those at all costs, you will lose all of them. This is the reality of suffering in this life, not just for Christians, but for everyone. If you live long enough, you will lose every relationship, every familial reaction and interaction. If you seek only to preserve those relationships, they're all going to be taken from you. I heard someone asked once, what would you wish for if you could wish for anything? And their response was immortality. I can't imagine a worse thing to wish for. While you live on through the ages of the world, while every single relationship you have is temporal and will come to an end surely before you, how could you ever do anything? No. That is the best that this world has to offer, is the hope to live forever in this state. And yet, what do we know from the first chapters of the Bible? To live forever with a sinful nature is something that will destroy us beyond measure. The way to the tree of life was guarded for this exact reason. God says at the end of Genesis 3, Guard the way to the tree of life, lest man put out his hand, take from the tree of life, eat of it, and live forever. If we live forever in this fallen sinful state, you think you're sinful now. Give yourself 10,000 years. 10,000 years of self-focus and loneliness. Give yourself 10,000 years of narcissism and pride, of thinking yourself indestructible, without need of any relationship yet, because all of them will go away anyway. You have no need of them to live. You think you're sinful now. Wait till you see these things exponentially increase in your life. You think you're angry and bitter now. Try to live forever as a sinner. No, that way is protected from us. It is a mercy for us to not live in sinful state forever. It is the most that we can do to not become bitter and destructive in the decades that God has graciously given us. Instead, no. To love this life and to define yourself only by this life and the desires that are yours here will surely destroy you. The Christian life is so much more than this. 
It is so much more than the work that we do. It is so much more than even the families that we have. And I love my family more than anything in this world. But the Christian life is so much more than that. And if all we are doing is seeking to preserve those relationships and preserve those reputations and to preserve our jobs and to preserve our comforts, then what is going to become of us? We will become so self-focused that we will not give a moment's thought to the things of the Lord. Instead, what we will do is define ourselves only by what we can do. Hear the words of Nebuchadnezzar. The one who does this, the one who lifts up his own head and says, look at this kingdom that me and my splendor have made. Nebuchadnezzar warns us in Daniel chapter 4, the Lord is able to humble anyone who lifts up their head like that. God opposes the proud. And if that was the end of the scriptural story, all of us should weep. But it's not. He gives grace to the humble. Do not define yourself by the things of this life. So much so that Jesus speaks in this hyperbolic way to say, whoever loses his life, or excuse me, whoever loves his life surely loses it. Who that loved their life did not lose it? How many of you were born in the 1800s? Uh, okay, if you were, just don't raise your hand. I don't want to. <laughs> Close? How many people that lived in the 1800s are still alive? All of the ones that lived there that loved their lives, that defined themselves by their careers, by their respect, by their reputation, by their income, by their relationships, by their family's name, how many of them are still with us? They try to preserve it on their tombstones, don't they? You ever been to old cemeteries where the tombstones are all starting to fall down and crumble and get covered over with moss and things? Here's the reality. All of us will one day be forgotten. If we define ourselves by this life only, then when we lose it, that's the end. What does Jesus say? There's a much better way of life than that. A much better way of life than that. A family that is far better. Because here's one of the things that Luke reminds us of. If we lose father and mother and brother and sister in the pursuit of Christ, in the gospel we will find thousands more brothers and sisters and grandmothers and grandfathers and children friends, relationships that can never be taken away from us. And so Jesus gives us the other side. Listen to this hyperbole. Whoever hates this life. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Why do I say that's hyperbole? Because who wants to keep for eternity something that he hates? He's expressing this very nature thing. If your approach to this life is, I will not preserve it to the cost of anything. I will pursue Christ to the cost of anything. Then you're going to find what real life is. Look at the title 
of this entire sermon series, the whole point that John is writing this gospel, that you may believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and live. It's not about what so many false teachers teach, which is you will have real purpose in your life now. That is a byproduct to salvation. That's not the focus. The focus is Christ and him crucified. The focus is the hope that is beyond the grave that says, I care not if my entire life is devoted to suffering, only to be persecuted to death. My Savior will remember me in the grave. Even when my tombstone has crumbled beyond recognition and my name has been on a lip for the last time. My Savior will remember me as far as the ages of the earth go. And I will surely rise again because he has. Look at this promise. Verse 26. If anyone serves me. Folks, that should settle on your ears like a cold towel on a hot day. Listen to the message that's being given to Greeks. Anyone. You don't have to be Jewish to follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Too many times is the false promise given to people. I believe in good intention, but unfortunately with wrong theology. Just say this prayer and all will be well. That's how you become a Christian. Say some words. No. Jesus says how to follow him. He says it explicitly. If anyone would desire to follow after me, he must first what? I hope you guys all have these things memorized. What? First thing. Ah, I heard step two. Step one. Say it louder. Deny yourself. Everything. Every hope that you can do, every righteousness you have done, every good work you have accomplished, every relationship that you have, every hope that you have to approach God on your own. Deny yourself. Deny anything. The desire for purpose and comforts and money and wealth and health and everything else. Deny it. Say no to it all. The next one. Take up, not just the cross, your cross. Let's go die. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And you go, well, where is he going? When he took his cross, he went to Golgotha. He went to the top of the hill and was crucified with two thieves. The Orthodox Church has a wisdom in some of their designs of their buildings. I know, that's hard to think about from an American perspective, but let's, let, let me express it. When you pass by an Orthodox church and you look on the top and you see a cross, and a cross that has one long beam, one short one, and then one slanted one underneath it. You ever seen this cross? Do you know what that is? It's showing the two thieves on either side, the way of death and the way of life. Two thieves were killed next to Christ. One of them chose to mock him. The other one chose to believe on him. 
Neither of them could be baptized. Neither of them could do a good work. Their hands were buttoned down. They were nailed to their own crosses, and both of them were about to expire. One of them mocked Christ. The other one believed in him. One of them is in the grave. The other one is in paradise with Christ. And they have it on the top of every single one of their buildings. Why? It is to remind us there are two ways in life. One way surely leads to death, and that is to preserve your own health. Think about this. Imagine being the cross on the one side. You're a thief. You're well dying in front of everyone with one of the most humiliating deaths ever. Everything has been stripped from you. You are naked. You are bare in front of all of your countrymen being put to death for stealing something. And you have the audacity to take the pride of the moment and assume yourself better than the one next to you. man on the other cross. He doesn't know the first thing about theology. He doesn't know anything about the apostles. He has flaunted the law of God. He has no hope in himself. He's about to expire. He asked Jesus one question. Who knows what it was? Remember me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Imagine, if you will, for me, this man coming to paradise. Imagine, theoretically, that there's a gatekeeper there. Why should you come in? Is he asking him for what good works he did? No. Is he asking him for his pedigree, his family, money, position, power, anything? Does this man have any claim to anything at all? Not a thing. Physically couldn't even do any good works. What is his only claim? The guy on the other cross said I could come here. That's it. There is absolutely nothing in our hands that we bring to salvation's story. Everything that is us, we deny as saving us at all. We take up our cross and we follow Christ because we know even in death and the worst humiliating suffering that could possibly come across us in this life is worth going through because we know that he who loses his life for Christ will surely find it. I don't want to live my life for the stuff here. I want to live with him forever. There. And if it costs us everything, and if it means every suffering Christian, when suffering comes your way, I pray that we learn to thank God for it. I spent years praying that God would give me a grateful heart in the midst of suffering because I knew I didn't have it. I would only ever thank God after the fact. And I wanted... I wanted to be grateful to God for something I couldn't see how it worked out. And 
And for the first time in my life, just a few months ago, it happened. Something I prayed for for years. I had no idea how something was about to come about. It felt like so many parts of my life were crashing in all at the same time. And I was able to, at the bottom of that, just say a word of thanks. And no, I am not tooting my own horn in any way. I am grateful to God for that gift because I know it doesn't have its origin in me. I know who I am. And I know what God does. And who I am is nothing worth hoping in. Nothing worth confidence in. But I know who I'm following. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Wonderful promise. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. You say, well, that sounds all fine and good on Monday of Passion Week. You even hear it in Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking up his sword and saying, I will follow you to the end, even if all the other people deny you, even if all the other apostles leave you, even if everyone seeks your life, I will defend you to the death. And whose denial of Christ is front and center on Good Friday other than Peter's? You see, the proud will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. This is the upside-down economy of heaven. It is not your pride and your confidence that will get you through the Christian life. It is your lowliness of mind and your meekness that God has gifted to you. Lean into them. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be humble that you may become grateful for what God is doing even if it costs you things that you will never get back. Where Christ is, he says, there will my servant be also. There is nothing, hear me, nothing that can separate us from that promise. You say, well, what if, what if they threaten my job? What if they take from me my security? What if they destroy my retirement? What if they take from me my hope and my relationships and my family? What if they threaten my life? Do not fear those who can only harm the body. Fear God. Fear the Lord. He can destroy both body and soul. It does not matter what power comes against you. It does not matter what things threaten to undo you. The promises of God are stronger than the wiles of the devil. There is nothing that he can do except threaten. But Christ can bring you to life. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is no cost too great to see that enacted in our lives. There is nothing that is not worth enduring to see that day one day. I don't know about you. I would trade every day of my life so far for that hope. 
every relationship that I love dearly, every promise of financial security. And I hope that as my life goes on, I look forward to that day more and more, rather than getting further grounded in this life, further grounded in the one to come. I pray the same for all of us. That just because we live in this body longer and longer, it does not make us stagnant here. But it leaves us expecting something more. You who have lived many more years than me have the gift of anticipating something through normal course of events before I will ever see it. I won't lie to you. Part of me is jealous of that. Because the graciousness of God to gift us an end to this sinful life and a hope beyond the grave is something I can't even begin to announce should be the center of hope for the Christian life. That we are those who get to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. For those of you who are younger than me, this world will tell you all manner of things to believe about yourself and the world around you. They're all lies. Because guess what? Their words will die with them. So will their promises. Find one who goes to the grave and then carries the grave away captive and then comes back with many and great promises. Listen to them. This is what John is establishing for us. He is establishing it to these Greeks who are coming to hear from this Jewish rabbi who is able to raise people from the dead. That's someone worth looking into. That's someone worth paying attention to. Let's pray for that strength. Our Father, we pray that as we come to seeing Christ face to face one day, that the sufferings of this life do not make us proud. Instead, they make us humble. They make us grateful. Father, you have so seen fit that those who suffer for your name's sake even with physical maladies and the breaking down of their own bodies, that they are being prepared in a unique way to see your glory in ways that others will not. And so for that, Father, we thank you for our sufferings. We thank you that you count us worthy to suffer in Christ's name. We pray, Father, that you find us faithful, not only when things are of ease, but when things are of difficulty. We pray that you make us faithful servants, not only of one another, but primarily of Christ. We pray that we serve Christ and follow him to the end, that where he is, we may be as well. We thank you for the promise that for those who serve Christ, you will honor them. And Father, you have honored us with salvation that cannot be taken away neither by the whims or the wiles of mankind. But in the midst of all of the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places, you have seated us with Christ Almighty. And where he is, we too will one day be. What a tremendous promise. We thank you for it in your son's name.